Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastiquic. Today, I'll be interviewing Thomas Peace about his book, The Slow Rush of Colonization, Spaces of Power in the Maritime Peninsula, 1680 to 1790. Thomas Peace is an associate professor of history and the co-director of the Community History Center at Huron University College. He's also an editor at activehistory.ca. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today on Witness to Yesterday. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Nicole. In the introduction, you mentioned that there are three conceptual frameworks that help us better understand the Maritime Peninsula during the time period explored in your book. One, the Maritime Peninsula itself. Two, Elizabeth Mankey's ideas about spaces of power. And three, settler colonialism. Could you explain how each of these concepts inform your study? Yeah, thanks for asking that, uh, Nicole. It's a good summary of, of the introduction. Uh, and I'll take each of those concepts individually, uh, beginning with the Maritime Peninsula. I began uh, thinking about the themes in this book when I first arrived at uh, at Acadia University back in the very late 90s, 1999, uh, for my undergrads. The first time I'd ever set foot in the Maritimes was my very first day at Acadia. And at that time, I really kind of gravitated to... Um, the history that I was learning uh, in this uh, new part of the world and thinking about Nova Scotia. But since that time, I have um, moved back and forth between where I grew up in Ontario and uh, and Nova Scotia, where my in-laws uh, where my in-laws are. And I began to see themes in the work that I was doing that, helped me think a little bit more broadly about the space in which I was living. And I was beginning to see historical actors uh, who were living in this space in ways that didn't totally align with the present day experiences uh, that I was having. So when we think about Nova Scotia, for example, uh, that's a very limited geography when we think about how Mi'kmaq people lived uh, and live in that space. Thinking about the political geography of Mi'kmaq is quite a bit different than Nova Scotia, Prince Edward or New Brunswick as, uh, as independent political entities. And of course, we can add into that the state of Maine Vermont, New Hampshire, northern Massachusetts, and parts of Quebec. And when we think about the Maritime Peninsula as a whole, and I define that really, if you can think about the bodies of water, up the St. Lawrence, down along the Atlantic coast, uh, and then kind of cutting inland to the Connecticut River as uh, as a geography. And it, you kind of have to kind of tilt, the, uh, tilt a typical map over to see it as a peninsula, but that term, uh, the term derives uh, from archaeology, and it it aligns with with the geography and the ways in which people moved within it. So that moves me over to the the concept of spaces of power, which is um, a concept uh, really 
most uh, most tightly developed by Elizabeth Mankey, a colleague of yours at the University of New Brunswick, who uh, unfortunately just died, uh, as you know, um, about a month or two uh, ago. And Elizabeth, this uh, when when I first read this concept, it's in an edited collection about um, New England and the Maritimes. It really resonated with me with what I was seeing within this uh, place. It'll, it's a concept that allows us to think about uh, the spatial manifestations of power in a much more kind of hybrid and fluid way, in a way that I think aligns much more tightly with the 18th century generally. But in this part of the world, it helps us, uh, I think, to think through this space in uh, in a varied way, in a way that helps us make sense of contradictions, which is one of the themes I try to elaborate on in the book. I really see uh, this period from about the 1680s until the 1790s as one that moves from this uh, more heterogeneous space where um, um, sometimes contrasting identities can coexist within uh, individuals to one that becomes much more uh, homogenous, uh, that settler colonial uh, world, which I'll come back to in just one second. That was the third concept that you uh, asked me to elaborate on. Um, but just before I do, the way I kind of uh, took Elizabeth's concept uh, in and kind of ran with it is to apply the ideas of Henri Lefebvre to, uh, to her work and really thinking about the ways in which space is produced through uh, the product, um, through the uh, conception, perception, and lived experiences of that space, and to think about the differing meanings and the ways in which power can be manifest in different ways through those three ways of relating to space. And so I'll just circle back at the end to come back to uh, that concept of settler colonialism, and just really simply articulate this book. In my in my view, is really a, a, a prehistory or the prequel, if you will. If that's still a hip term. I'm not entirely sure if it is, uh, but uh, the prequel to settler colon- the development of a settler colonial culture in the Maritime Peninsula, and I would argue also more broadly uh, in North America. You can see the seeds of it developing in New England, a little bit in New France, but it's really over the 1740s, uh, 50s, and 60s where there's this cultural change and transformation where emerging out of that, we can begin to see the sinews that stitch together a settler culture that I think still defines uh, the world in which you and I live in today in, uh, in Canada and the United States. Elizabeth Mankey, who served as the Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Studies here at University of New Brunswick and did recently pass away, she radically changed the way that we all think about the Atlantic Canada world. And I see your book as as emerging out of that radical idea shift. You also mentioned in the introduction that you did your master's degree with John Reed at St. Mary's University. A lot of our listeners will be familiar with his work and your PhD with Carolyn Podrechny at York University. How did their mentorship and guidance influence and shape your approach to studying Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations? Yeah, just before I talk about John and Carolyn's influence on my scholarship, uh, I just, I, I want to come back and talk a little bit more about Elizabeth's work because that book, Fault Lines of Empire, is really, that was my real uh, first introduction to uh, to her work. And uh, in many ways, what she does there is she asks uh, what I would say is, a well, this is what makes work so great, I think sometimes. I would say a really simple question uh, that spins out and um, 
and demonstrates the important ways in which structure, uh, political structures in this case, and legal structures shape different decisions. So she asks this really, I think, basic question about why people in Machias, Maine and Shelburne, Nova Scotia, people who migrated from the same parts of New England into these places at around the same period, these places are the same distance from, uh, from Boston, um, by, by water. It's an important caveat because some of your listeners say it's a long way to Shelburne from, uh, from Machias over land, which is true, uh, by water. Uh, and yet one uh, place uh, participates uh, on one side of the American Revolution and the other takes more of a neutral stance. And Shelburne takes more of a neutral stance in the American Revolution. She asks, you know, well, why why is this? Why do these people not take the same uh, same decisions? And she uh, she points out that a lot of it has to do with town government and uh, the municipal structure that develops in Nova Scotia. And I think asking that, what I would say is a basic question, which is just a simple, isn't this strange? I don't want, I'm not saying that to, 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 to simplify her argument, but then to tease out why, uh, why the, how, how this happened demonstrates kind of the complexities underpinning it. And I would say Elizabeth's work is just full of these types of pulling out those foundational um, aspects of the world in which we live. And in fact, just the other day, I was doing a project and looking up some um, early Canadian laws and drawing on a database that she had put together, uh, has been putting together over, I don't know, maybe the past decade. And I think her influence on our field uh, is um, it was probably really under-recognized in her lifetime, although I know she was recognized in some ways. Uh, but I think uh, her her scholarship, at least in terms of its impact on me, uh, was transformative. Uh, like I said, that concept of spaces of power just roots right back into her work and then conversations I had with her over time. And one of the other pieces I'll say I'll say about this is she she did read the book. I don't know if she was a uh, totally uh, champion of the, of the of the of the book or not. But one of the great things about Elizabeth is she is such a warm and welcoming person. But she also is was very direct, and and I think that that uh, her the type of mentorship that she provided for her students, the handful of students that I've known over the years, and the way she interacted with colleagues was I always saw as exemplary because she could demonstrate your value as a human, while she could also say, well, you know, this isn't uh, <laughs> I, I I don't see things quite the same way that you that you do, and and I always found that really productive. I met Elizabeth through John. Uh, and John um, has been probably the, my longest time scholarly mentor. I just emailed him this morning with something. Uh, I met him uh, 20 years ago. Um, yeah, just as I was finishing my undergrad at Acadia, he came to see if any students at Acadia wanted to do a master's degree at St. Mary's. I was uh, in a long-term relationship and uh now now i'm telling tales a little out of school but i was i wanted to stay more or less in uh in in and around the annapolis valley if i could uh so that was appealing and and uh and saint mary's is a is a wonderful place to do a master's and they fully funded it which is a, a big feather in their cap i don't know if they still do that now but they make it easy to do a master's degree at that time they made it easy to do a master's degree even without applying for shirk or ogs funding and uh john uh, just again opened my eyes to the ways in which we can ask different questions. And again, some of them are really simple questions, but they're not the way we tend to think. So his early book in the 1980s about failed colonies, it's like, what a brilliant approach. We don't always need to look at the successes. We can, in fact, in some ways, looking at the failures is far more um, enlightening in terms of 
of what's going on in the past than uh, than the successes. Uh, and so John and Elizabeth, I really see, I, I, I saw as working very, in very similar ways that, that helped us see this place in uh, in a new light. And by this place, I, I mean uh, the Maritime Peninsula, the region, the general region of, of New England and, uh, and the Maritimes. And uh, they just time and time again helped me to think differently. And I, not to, I, not to diminish my book, of course, I hope everyone reads it, but I, in some ways, I see the book as, as reflecting, uh, and I hope it honors the ideas that I've learned from them, but in many ways I see it as extending their ideas rather than bringing something totally new to the table. The last piece I, I, I need to say, because you, you, you brought her up, and rightly so, is Carolyn Perucini, uh has been uh, just a core um, foundation to my scholarship. Um, she taught me how, well, much like how I knew, I've known Carolyn for longer than I've known Elizabeth. Um, she's really the one who taught me uh, about um, doing history in a good way. It, it, she demonstrated to me right from the very beginning that history is a relational uh, discipline. You know, so often, at least uh, I'm, a li- I'm a little bit out of my undergrad. Maybe I'm getting. I find sometimes I date myself. So maybe maybe this isn't the case. But often, I uh, when I was learning history, I'd hear things like, "Well, history is an individualist uh, discipline. Historians work alone. Uh, historians don't need much money to do their research." Uh, all of those, I think, are myths. And I throw the last one in there because there is a, uh, there's a funding piece here that I think is really important. It's always important to recognize history takes a lot of money. But we also enter into um, history with responsibilities, not just uh, to uh, the ethics. Well, this is the ethics of the historian are our responsibilities, not just to our colleagues. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment about collaborative research, which Carolyn uh, really oriented me towards, but also we have a responsibility to uh, the historical actors who we study, and the communities, the, the present day communities from which they in which they lived, and uh, our work uh, bears considerable uh, considerable weight, and 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 so we need to enter into it carefully, and, and it's Carolyn who really attuned me to that. Uh, in uh, in some meaningful ways, and then she also really taught me that uh, our our work as historians, as much as you know, this is a book, single authored book. Uh, it's it's done in community, and it's done. Uh, and I, actually, I'll just go right back to what I said about Elizabeth. It's actually done. That community doesn't need to get along all the time. And in fact, I what I say to my students is, you know, a historian has a perspective on the past. Our job is to interpret the past, but where history is really produced is in the historiography is in when uh, you bring all these uh, historical interpretations together and, and that brings out new meaning and, and how we think about the past changes and evolves through that. And so it's a, at its heart, I think uh, history is collaborative. And, and again, John, Elizabeth and uh, Carolyn, I think are all three um, wonderful models of that approach to scholarship. Well, you're definitely continuing in, in their, uh, in their legacy uh, with this book. You introduce us to many fascinating historical characters. Indigenous man by the name of Sawantan embodies many of the central themes that emerge throughout the book. Could you tell us about Sawantan and why he's such an important figure in your work? Yeah, so this is somebody who I've been, um, I don't have a good language to talk about my relationship to this person because he is somebody who, uh, whose life, I just 
became fascinated by uh, in my PhD research. I came across him, and the first thing that really attracted me to him is he graduated with the equivalent of a bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College in 1781. And so you have, here's a Wendat man uh, who uh, is a university graduate at a time where, you know, I was shocked to know anyone, there, there are any indigenous uh, university graduates. Now, my work has moved uh, into this area <laughs> quite a bit. And I can tell you, there's several, uh, the ways in which indigenous peoples engage with higher education dates all the way back to the uh, 1640s. Um, it's very, it's a very complicated history, uh, but I hesitate to call him terribly unique. Uh, he is, uh, there's a small number of people who took the path that he, he took in terms of education. But at that time, I didn't know anything about this. And he was my entry point into it. And then I started just kind of pulling at strings. I collaborated with my colleague, Jonathan Laney, who's a curator at the McCord Museum on a couple biographical pieces. Uh, and Jonathan uh, is from Wendage, the same community that uh, Suantan was from. And he just became more and more fascinating because uh, the community Wendage, or Lorette, as it was also known, Wendat people allied to the Jesuits, so Catholic. And here he is at this Protestant university in New England. Uh, he, While he's there, the American Revolution breaks out and he fights with the Americans. He actually meets George Washington twice. Uh, but then... American Revolution's over. He goes back uh, to his community via uh, Kingston, what Cataraqui, uh, which becomes Kingston, um, um, and then he becomes a school teacher in his community. And so he has all of these uh, contradictions. And that's when I was talking earlier about why I like spaces of power as a framework. He's a great example of why it's so important because. He is not unique in terms of uh, indigenous, colonial, or imperial officials. And I do try to lay out in the book these uh, people who you really can't sometimes make sense of who they are from, uh, from the perspective of today because they do really contradictory uh, things over the course of their life. And I think it, when we look at biography generally, I do think that he, there's a certain truth there anyways. But I also think it gets at the ways in which there isn't this uh, territorial homo homogeneity of identity and place that you begin to see as settler colonialism see, uh, takes root. And as, of course, nationalism overlays within that. Uh, and so today we think about identity markers such as names, language, uh, and other ways that we might define ourselves that I don't think would resonate at all with somebody like him. Uh, I think he, uh, it seems to me he was plurilingual. Uh, he moved throughout different spaces, occupied different names. Uh, um, one, uh, the name he most commonly goes by is Louis Vincent. Uh, but uh, what I love, and this is why I use Swanton, is there's a Bible from 1775 in the Dartmouth College Special Collections. And there right on the cover is his name, Louis Vincent Swanton. And, um, and, and I'm assuming in his own pen. It's actually written in several different uh, places on the cover. It's kind of a good reminder of my grade seven and eight years. I don't know if you were that way, Nicole, but, uh, you know, when you wrote all over the binder covers and all that stuff. Um, uh, but in any case, I'm, I'm rambling on, but he is a fascinating man and his life um, uh, tells us so much about 
the Maritime Peninsula. And then, uh, well, I guess let me just take a step back because I was about to say some other things about just uh, moving into Lower Canada, Canadian history. But it's also his, the other really important piece about uh, his connection to the Maritime Peninsula is we see his father and grandfather and some of his relatives, at least the people who, based on the genealogy, we we assume are his relatives. And here I'm working with uh, Serge Goudreau and and Jonathan's work more than the primary research I've done myself. Um, but um, we can see we can see them in the Maritime Peninsula in places like Tuapsec, the Mi'kmaq place Tuapsec, which is uh, also known as Port Royal and Annapolis Royal, which is quite far east in uh, in uh, in Mi'kma'ki. Uh, and so Wendat people and Swanton's ancestors had a connection to this space. And Swanton himself, one of the other really interesting things is his obituary appears in uh, in a newspaper in Salem, Massachusetts in 1825. So he kind of, his life kind of covers all of the uh, geography of the Maritime Peninsula in a really useful way. Another interesting historical figure who plays a key role is a non-Indigenous man named William Phipps. What can we learn about imperial and colonial policy from his lived experience? William Phipps is another really serendipitous uh, historical actor uh, in this study because he grew up and he was born in 1650 on the Kennebec River, which is uh, kind of a middle of uh, the present day state of Maine. Uh, and this was uh, the meeting place between Wabanaki and English people in 1650. Um, but he his life spans uh, uh, war, I guess, most commonly known as King Philip's War, uh, now sometimes more commonly known as Metacom's War. Um, it spans uh, the, the changeover to uh, royal, uh, Massachusetts becomes a royal colony. He becomes the first governor because of the political connections he builds over over 30 years. And what's one of the first thing, he does two things uh, really early. One is, is the border of Massachusetts gets extended really kind of indefinitely north, which is always telling that they don't really know what they, they don't really have a vision other than, oh, we'll just expand up there, which I'll come back to uh, later on. Uh, and then also he leads these two attacks, one on Port Royal and one on Quebec. And why I think that's uh, that's really important uh, is, first of all, it helps in terms of storytelling and just breaking down uh, the narrative. But one of the things that changes there after King Philip's War is the English stop using the term Indian Wars. That's their term, not mine. And start using the term French and Indian Wars. As far as I can tell, that term was coined by Benjamin Church, another a very prominent New Englander. Um, but why that's important is because one of the things the book tries to argue is that the English and then the British after 1708, that's an awkward kind of linguistic transition, but it's an important one kind of uh, as we kind of think about the rise of empire. Um, they uh, they are, what's hap- what happens over this period is really kind of a removal of, of their own agency in their minds. So a claiming of innocence Uh, The scholar Mary Mary Louise Pratt, when she thinks about imperial travel writing in the 19th century, uses the term anti-conquest. I only address it in the the scholarly sense because it's a bit confusing given all the stuff that's going on. But what she gets at there is this kind of uh, rhetorical strategy uh, that that 
that renders the uh, imperialist innocent of their own actions. And I think what happens, what this term French and Indian Wars does is it removes the agency to a certain extent of the, of the, of the, of the New Englanders and of the British for the act of disp- indigenous dispossession that takes place by kind of hitching the French onto uh, what was before an uh, explicit active uh, dispossession uh, warfare and instead by they they, what increasingly happens over this period is that there's a line blurred and so by the time we get to the 1740s 1750s and 1760s in their mind they're fighting primarily the french but the result of that is is indigenous uh, dispossession a sense that there's no need to justify or legitimize legitimize their presence on the land in a way that there was actually in the 17th century The archival material you use throughout the book focuses primarily on the masculine experience, and I assume that's just the nature of the records. But what did you discover about the role of Indigenous women during the period you studied? One of the things that I wanted to try to address in this book, and it's it's really difficult because the colonial record is really all we have. And so we have a very specific view, and it is almost universally written uh, by, by men. And so we have a, a very masculine experience that that um, is what's left for us to understand this period. And so it was with the encouragement of uh, the second reader of my PhD dissertation. So this is, uh, if you don't want to buy the book, you can get a preview of this in my PhD dissertation, which you can get for free. Um, but um, he encouraged me to really think about, Ch- uh, his name's Bill Wicken, and uh, another uh, very uh, well-respected and uh, just amazing scholar of um Mi'kmaq, uh, Mi'kmaq history in particular, and the history of treaties, um, um, the the peace and friendship treaties that I, I, pres- I assume we'll talk about at some point in the future. Um, but he encouraged me to look at the 1708 census, which is a nominal census of Peninsular Mi'kmaq, so really present day uh, Nova Scotia, um, and. Through that census, he point he he uh, really introduced me to child woman ratios and analyzing uh, and, and using the census to kind of get beyond uh, what is on the written page. And one of the things I learned by doing that was that the experience of Mi'kmaq people was radically different. Uh, depending on their proximity to European settlements, the Acadians, uh, but also the New England uh, New England fisheries, and so now, now you're probably asking, how on earth? What does this have to do with women? Well, what child woman ratios show us is really the reproduction in a society, and so what causes uh, there to be less children in a society? Well, one can be mortality, and I think that's a really important piece to emphasize kids just dying or kids moving. But another is the uh, stress placed on women's bodies and uh, around migration. And so I think it's not quite a gendered analysis, but it is an important piece to remember uh, and that I try to flag in uh, in the book is that the archive is silent on women's experience a lot of the time. But what we see when we through the tools that historians and historical demographers have developed is we can see the ways in which the colonial and imperial processes, primarily through warfare and settler expansion, bear weight on indigenous women uh, in ways that, that, that we can kind of pick up and we need to call attention to. Uh, because there's two real myths that I think exist, uh, not amongst historians, but within the public. And one is that... Um, History always gets better. 
And I don't think when you look at the demography of indigenous peoples in North America, I think that's demonstrably untrue. Actually, the 19th century and early 20th century is really terrible for indigenous peoples. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to demonstrate here as well, is that, uh, and this again harkens back to why I think spaces of power is so useful. Not all Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki peoples experienced this world in the same ways. Uh, Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki peoples living close to colonial settlements or imperial um, installations uh, or even the fisheries had a much more difficult time than Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki people living further away. And in fact, those communities, although their sample size is small, so we always have to be careful. This isn't representative. Uh, we should, we, we need to be careful. These are, these are hesitant, almost hypotheses, right? Because the statisticians will say the sample size is too small. Um, but they, the, the further, but, but it also aligns with the document, what, what we see in, in, in other documents. The further uh, Indigenous peoples lived from Europeans, the healthier they were. And they weren't that much, uh, um, they, they were living relatively healthy, sustainable lives, which I think is really important to call attention to as well as we think about the role that disease and other and, and warfare played in Indigenous communities. It's not kind of a linear line, but communities wax and wane. And um, and, and, it, and it's really important to recognize that, um, that I wouldn't use the term like thriving, necessarily because I think it, it mislead it's it, it can be that a term like that can be used to mislead but there are but but these are communities that uh, have deep ties to their past that have not been ruptured I, I don't think I think and I think you can see that in in various uh, times and places and that this what is happening here especially as we get closer to the 19th century, is where those moments of, of, of real challenge begin to develop in ways that don't develop before them. In very general terms, could you tell us a bit about the difference between French and English policy towards Indigenous peoples during this time period? And then I'll push you to answer a little bit more of a specific question. Could you tell us about the treaty-making processes in the late 17th century and how they evolved during the 18th century and what was the legal purpose of the Peace and Friendship Treaty? So that's quite a, a big question there, but yeah. <laughs> I know you can handle it. So I think the big lesson that I learned, and I'd be, I'm really curious, I've not seen a book review of my book, so I'm very curious to hear what people think about it. I've heard, you know, bits. Of, I, I I know people have read it, and but you know, when they somebody says something to your face, uh, it's a little bit different than what they'll put in paper. Um, but I think one of the takeaways from my study, especially of the 17th century, uh, but also especially with the English, uh, the 18th century as well, is a lot of people on the ground, imperial officials on the ground, don't really have a clear vision of how to uh, live within this space. And so there is no concrete policy. So with the French, we can see this, we can, well, with the French, we can see a policy of gift giving develop really quickly. But again, it's not widespread, it's targeted. And so I would, I, I do argue in the book that where French policy is most tightly targeted is actually around the Penobscot River, where there are close ties because of the Saint-Castin family. And in Mi'kma'ki, for example, we don't see that same, those same structures of alliance develop. They're not as robust. Uh, and that changes over time as the geopolitics in the region change over time. 
with the English, we can see some real tensions. The English really are looking for legitimacy, I think. And so they try to find legitimacy. They either rationalize away Indigenous dispossession by talking about Indigenous peoples not being present at all, or they begin engaging with deeds and treaty-making practices, uh, which are super complicated. Uh, but I, I really like Ian Saxine's work because he also gets at the ways in which those complications are kind of productive because it's, it's symbolic. And John's work, John Reed's work also kind of gets at this. They don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> uh, the English, uh, and they're trying to find a way that uh, that um, that gives them this process of legitimacy. So when we think you're uh, you're a legal historian, so I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. But one of the pieces subtext of the book that I try to argue is the archive itself is part of that process. We begin to see the archival record develop during this period in, in increasingly mature ways in this development of imperial uh, bureaucracy. And it's, it, it's about claiming legitimacy. Um, and, uh, you know, Jeffers Lennox's work, for example, also on cartography gets at this as well, as you can begin to see the ways in which the imperial apparatus grows to, uh, to uh, create this legitimacy. While at the same time, there's no legal framework uh, in either of those cultures that really gets at a Wabanaki or Mi'kmaq understanding of the land or of the law, I don't think. And I'm not, I don't claim expertise in those areas, so I want to be really clear about that. But I think um, Micah Pauling, who's a scholar at uh, the University of Maine, um, has done some really great work on the continuity of Wostukwukwe uh, people on the Wostukwuk River um, in the 19th century, demonstrating the concept of homeland and the ways in which uh, Mi'kmaq uh, or um, indigenous uh, Wabanaki and Wostukwe uh, and, and Mi'kmaq spatial practices uh, continue despite the perceptions of dispossession. And I think that's a really useful way of thinking about this, uh, about these legal frameworks is that concept of homeland the French and English can create legal apparatus, uh, legal tools to lead to that disp- dispossession, but it's never it's never effective in terms of removing that connection to the land. Uh, and of course, we see over the nineteenth and twentieth century, we see much more horrific strategies for doing that. Um, that that I can come back to a bit because they do tie in. But I think it's really important to emphasize that the best I think the best legal concept that I that I've seen uh, applied is this idea of usufruct uh, rights, and I don't think that really even carries the uh, carries the same same weight. And I lay that out a little bit in the book. In terms of the peace and friendship treaties. Um, there, again, is a really important uh, history that hasn't, I think, been laid out in, um, um, in a popular way, but has been laid out, I think, in a scholarly way. And so we're constantly talking about peace and friendship treaties as if this work hasn't been done. But Bill Wicken and John Reed in, I think, 93, as part of the RCAP, the Royal Commission uh, on Aboriginal Peoples Process, have this great uh, um, um, 
report on uh, peace and friendship treaties that really kind of anchors it back into this New England context and uh, coming out of King Philip's Metacom's War and taking it right up until the 1760s. And there's several important pieces there. One is it demonstrates the ways in which Wabanaki peoples are engaging with this legal process, but also the ways it's being used to extend throughout the peninsula. Um, it also uh, demonstrates to us, and in and, and terms of those simple questions that we could be asking, um, you know, we need to ask ourselves, well, why seven, you know, we need to remind ourselves that in 1710 and 1758, these important moments where French power is kind of removed from the region did not necessarily look that way to anybody on the ground. Uh, there were lots of examples of French and uh, and English power being removed from the region and things returning back to normal. And so uh, we need to also recognize that there's no there was no guarantee for indigenous. In fact, the, the normal practice in, in in the Maritime Peninsula would be one of regular uh, transition between imperial powers. Uh, and, and, and the last piece I'll add, and this is a piece uh, I've gravitated because you're based in New, New Brunswick and our work is, we've kind of been talking a lot about, uh, I would say the Bay of Funday world, uh, but my book spends a lot of time actually up in the St. Lawrence as well. And there are also peace and friendship treaties developing there. And I think when we look at the ways in which these peace and friendship treaties, differing culture uh, practices of peace and friendship treaties come together, we can see a really productive uh, we can develop some insights, I think, into the geopolitics of Eastern North America more generally. One of the other reasons why the Maritime Peninsula is so uh, important, and I meant to say this right at the beginning and I forgot, is it is it's it's not quite an imperial backwater. I hesitate to use those terms because it's not that's not the, again. I don't really have a good language for this. But you can see the diplomacy that exists where I'm talking to you from now, uh, London, Ontario, in the Great Lakes region, is there isn't anything really comparable in the Maritime Peninsula. And it's not because the Europeans were more powerful. It's quite the opposite. Europeans did not have the same presence or interest that they had in the Great Lakes. So there is no Great Peace of Montreal. There is no um, uh, 1764 Treaty of Niagara in this region. And again, it, it this is the history, historical aspect. It's not that that act of innocence that age that I, that I applied to the English. It's not it's not just um, um, an intentional decision. It's also a reflection of historical processes. And what's happened, what happens in this period, is the uh, the British and the French are much more focused on the Great Lakes area. And the Maritime Peninsula is an area where we don't see uh, where we don't see the same types of diplomacy because they're not as interested in in that space. That changes though after 1760, which I can get into in a bit. Yeah, and as a legal historian, of course, I have to ask you about the 1763 Royal Proclamation, which marked a profound turning point in the history of Indigenous non-Indigenous relations in North America. Its importance has been recognized in Section 25 of the Constitution Act 1982. However, very few people understand its historical relevance or meaning. Could I get you to explain the historical and ongoing significance of the Royal Proclamation? The Royal Proclamation of 1763 is something I think we need to study a lot more. It's far more complicated than anything I have, uh, I've turned my mind to. I don't profess to... Uh, 
to expertise here because I actually can identify several things I just need to get in the archives and learn about. You know, the person who I think knew the most about this was Elizabeth and I uh, had many great conversations with her. And as far as I know, she hadn't published too much uh, uh, on this, although uh, I could be wrong there. Uh, but she was working on this uh, um, at the time of her death, as I understand it, which is... is um, it's just one of the real tragic, uh, one of the many tra- tragedies to 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 her death. But the Royal Proclamation of 1763, as I said, I, I made allusion to the 1764 Treaty of Niagara, and in this part of the world, we've got territorial treaties almost immediately after the Royal Proclamation of 1763. In your part of the world, New Brunswick, uh, and really east of, uh, well, really the entire Maritime Peninsula in Quebec, there are no territorial treaties. There's only these peace and friendship treaties. And the reason for that is because of the way the Royal Proclamation gets interpreted. But it's more complex because the Royal Proclamation was an extension of developing British policy and it its spirit was more or less applied by the Lieutenant Governor Jonathan Belcher in 1762, the year before it was issued in Mi'kma'ki, uh, recognizing Mi'kmaq space. So it... Um, uh, so it's it, it it very quickly gets forgotten and not taken up in the Maritime Peninsula because the British do not think that they uh, that Indigenous people have rights and 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 that's where I come back to that French and Indian Wars piece. They feel that in the conquest of their military conquest of the French, they defeated Indigenous uh, all, all Fran- France's Indigenous allies and. To come back to those child-woman ratios, that's one of the reasons why demonstrating that colonial, the colonial or the effects of colonialism were not ubiquitous throughout the region is so important. It's because a lot, it's my belief at least, what I've taken away from the archive, is that there are a lot of Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki people and Wendat people in the Maritime Peninsula for whom that what's happening amongst Europeans is not that important. And, uh, and I would argue there, yes, treaties matter and we can see the ways in which there is a treaty process. But again, this is part of a repeating pattern of colonialism that goes back to the, to, to, to the 17th century. And so, uh, so what, what I'm trying to get at here is the ways in which we see after 1763 uh, a legitimacy of rapid repopulation. And I use the words of Charles Clark, who's a historian in the 1970s. He calls this in the New England context, the great swarming. And I love the term. I know it's probably lots of people are going to find it offensive. Uh, it probably is kind of offensive if you're uh, one of those New Englander from a family that moved, <laughs> moved into Wabanaki space during this period. But it gets at how radical this changes. 60,000 people over the 17, late 1750s, 1760s move from New England into Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki space. That's more than the Loyalists. So as Canadian hosts, as good as Canadian historians, we always go back to the Loyalists. So this is before the Loyalists, and it's a radical repopulation of Indigenous space. And why that's so important with the Royal Proclamation is some of the, two of those settlers, well, two of those landholders, are the nephews of Henry Ellis, who was the gov- absentee governor of Nova Scotia. And what was he doing while he was the absentee governor of Nova Scotia? Or what's he credited with doing? Again, this is part of the work that I or somebody else, I don't know when I'm going to have the time to do it, so somebody else could do it too. What's he doing? 
he's crafting the royal proclamation with Lord Egremont. And so here we have somebody who's on the ground floor of the royal proclamation, who has on the ground experience in Georgia, working with indigenous peoples, who understands the diplomacy and his ancestors are colonizing not just some abstract part of Mi'kma'ki. They're colonizing the heart, what I would say is part of the heart of Mi'kma'ki, Shubenacadie River, where Mi'kmaq people have lived in meaningful ways from time immemorial in a well-documented way, both in the colonial record and also in uh, uh, in um, the oral uh, and customary uh, Mi'kmaq record. And uh, as I understand, and again, I should say as, an outside, uh, as, a, as a white scholar, I want to be really clear, as I understand uh, Mi'kmaq traditions. And that to me is, is what we need to start asking the, about how the Royal Proclamation was applied in uh, what is today the Maritime Peninsula, because it's not true that it was totally ignored. Like I said, Jonathan Belcher applied it in 1762 in uh, an area called the the Domaine de Wa, or the King's Post on the north shore of the St. Lawrence. Uh, Governor Murray uh, uh, says that it will also apply in that space. That's uh, the Inu Nutasinan. Um, and it's, it, it's, super complicated. And I don't think we have uh, clear answers, but it's really important for your listeners to recognize uh, the Royal Proclamation is a core part of our constitution. It ties into the Treaty of Niagara and it's why territorial treaties are so important. Um, I would also say there's a territorial component. I didn't get this in with the Peace and Friendship Treaties, but you asked me how they changed. I would say the the broader documentation around the 1752 treaty also suggests there's a territorial component around protecting where? Shubenacadie Valley, exactly where the Ellis settlers, amongst others, settled. It's one of the first places the British resettle in uh, in Nova Scotia. And it, to me, it's uh, it's a tactical move to dispossess and uh, disempower Mi'kmaq people. Now, one final question, and this is a big one. <laughs> As all Canadians grapple with the legacy of colonialism, what lessons can we learn from your historical analysis that would better inform current discussions. In other words, how does the history of the Maritime Peninsula shed light on current debates regarding Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations? Well, the short answer there, that is a, that is a big question, and I could go on and on in, in many different ways, I think, depending on uh, um, um, the way the winds are blowing, I suppose. But I mean, I think the best example there is when we look at what's going on in uh, in the fisheries and the Atlantic coast and, and the ways in which the, the conflict that exists in the fisheries is one, as we know from the 1999 Marshall decision, uh, where, where that kind of became most acute, although of course in, in places like Restigouche and elsewhere, um, uh, fishery tensions over the fisheries have been a longstanding. Um, these tensions go back to this period and that's one of the other pieces, you know, some of your listeners may bristle at the term settler colonialism. I know some people do, but it's really hard to deny that the, the Canadian American nation states really emerge out of this period. And some of the core tensions, which have never been addressed sufficiently, also emerge in this period. So whether it was a good thing or bad thing or not, and I don't want to be mistaken as saying one or the other, these peace and friendship treaties, what were they about? They were about finding a, a good way to live together as the English and British in particular are intruding on uh, Mi'kmaq land. And I, uh, and just, be, just before I um, 
just before I turn to, to something else, I think it's really important to recognize that the Mi'kmaq in particular, well, the Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki also tell the French, this is our land and you are intruding on it. So it's not, again, that, and that's another key sign that, it, that the, 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 the British might be, tell themselves that the French had this really strong alliance with indigenous peoples. Uh, and there, there certainly were alliances uh, that, that demonstrate themselves uh, in fairly material and direct ways, but the British had their own uh, alliances with indigenous nations as well. Um, but, but on the whole, what we see uh, is um, a Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki autonomy uh, and self-determination in a very, very clear way. And what settler colonial what settler colonial institutions do really easily, and this is the work that the French and Indian Wars were doing in the 1690s and 1700s and 1710s, is they make it really easy to ignore that. And I would argue that that's the history of the 19th and 20th century uh, is um, the Canadian legacy of the Canadian and American state just uh, developed that ignorance further and further. And it wasn't really until uh, the 1920s uh, and 1930s where uh, Indigenous voices began to really um, um, find ways to be heard within settler society. And I want to be clear about my language there. They're always making these points, but they're not heard in settler society as opposed to uh, they begin making these arguments uh, uh, right away. The Silliboy case would be a good example of that in 1928. Anyways, uh, I think I rambled there, but but it, it, but my argument, and, and this is why people should buy my book, I think I dumped on it a couple times, uh, and buy any book on the 18th century, is this is a formative period that affects our day-to-day lives today. I I, I, I think in a way the 17th century isn't uh, – it doesn't, doesn't share that in the same way. But the institutions that we live in today are shaped by this period. And this is where – like I said, this is the prequel <laughs> to the lives that we live. Yeah, and I think that's the important part of your book here is you take the constitutional story of this nation backwards so that we get a deeper and more profound understanding of our origin stories of the Canadian state. But it's all grounded on these negotiations and treaties and royal proclamations and whatnot that a lot of us don't really know too much about. So your book's a real contribution to to that understanding. It's a remarkable work. I recommend it to anyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on Witnessed Yesterday. Yeah, thanks, Nicole. My guest today has been Thomas Peace. He's the author of The Slow Rush of Colonization, Spaces of Power in the Maritime Peninsula, 1680 to 1790, published by UBC Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. 
This interview was recorded on December 19th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.